Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, Interview with a Survivor, our hosts, Lucky and Tim, will be discussing near misses, problem projects, and resolutions. In today's episode, Cassandra Wetzel brings an owner's perspective and will share the challenges of stabilizing and repairing a retaining wall in a tight urban location. Proudly brought to you by our series sponsor, Pia Research, and today's episode sponsor, Densification. Welcome back to DFI's podcast, Broadcasting Common Ground. I'm Tim Siegel, and I'm here with my talented co-host, Lucky Nagarajan. Hi, Lucky. Hey, Tim. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Great to be here, too. This is the fourth episode in our series, Interview with a Survivor, where our guests share their experience when problems arise on their projects. This kind of thing is no stranger to those of us in geotechnical engineering. It seems like problems are always just around the corner. Today, our guest is Cassandra Wetzel. Cassandra is district office manager and principal with GZA Geo Environmental. She is a subject matter expert and known for her creative problem solving. If you've been listening to our previous podcasts in this series, you'll know that our discussions have been primarily firsthand accounts. Those consultants, experts, uh, contractors that are involved in the failure. In this episode, we're going to take a bit departure from that. We have asked Cassandra, and she is uh, willingly obliged, to come at this from the perspective of the owner of a failure. And she, of course, worked hand in hand with the owner uh, during the diagnosis and subsequent remediation of the failure. But before we get into the details of her project, Lucky, would you tell us a little bit more about Cassandra? Of course. (laughs) I and Cassandra go a few years back. I've known her for the last four years, and uh, she's an engineering rock star, though she's too humble to say so. (laughs) If you ask her, she will say she's had a very simple, plain road to where she is today. However, she's been instrumental in shaping many young geotechnical engineers and their careers. And also, not to forget this, she is a great mentor to many in the New York area. She's recently shared her experience as part of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Without any delay, now let's bring our guest, Cassandra Wetzel. Hi, Cassandra. So great to see you. Hi, Lucky. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Um, You received your undergraduate, uh, sorry, you received your graduate degree at California State University in Fresno, right? Um, I'm assuming you are a native Californian. How did you end up in Big Apple? (laughs) What made you move and how did that happen? California to Big Apple. Yeah, that's a, it was a, it was a journey to be sure. So, um, so you were correct initially. I got my bachelor's degree in California and my master's here in New York. Um, however, for long-term career, I knew that an urban environment would be a good fit. And I had family on Long Island. So more than 20 years ago, I came to New York and started working here. Now, did you, have, when you moved to the Big Apple, did you start with GZA or Oh, I didn't. No, I started actually with Parsons Brinkerhoff, which is now okay. part of WSP. And they gave me an opportunity to get started working on uh, some projects on Long Island and um, consult with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And I got my graduate degree, like I said, at NYU in Brooklyn. And um, as a result of that, I, I ended up uh, moving over to GZA and I've been here ever since. Okay. So that, I mean, from a with your title district office manager, what would you say your breakdown is from, you know, say management uh, uh, work versus uh, technical work? Oh, so um, I would say my technical work probably takes up about 70% of my week. So it's, wow. I'm still a technical principal. I'm still very much involved with meeting, meeting clients, developing new opportunities, as well as the execution of some of some really challenging projects like we're going to talk about today. And I know, and I know you know this, but you know, DFI considers themselves a really a big champion 
of women in our industry. And of course, we even have a group, Women in Deep Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about how it was uh, with, with Parson Brinkhoff, GZA, just in general of, of growing your career uh, in such a, a large market as New York City uh, as, a, as a female? So when I started my career, I was actually very fortunate to have a, um, a mentor and a pro and, you know, a, a, someone who supported my career. And he, um, he actually convinced the office manager at Kleinfelder to give me a chance as an intern. So, um, at first it was someone advocating for me and giving me a chance to come in and work hard and prove myself. And I did in the lab and in the field and in the, in the office. Um, that opportunity led me to move across country and it happened again. And someone at Parsons Brinkerhoff again, you know, as my advocate um, promoted increasing the number of women in the department and um, giving me an opportunity to move across country and be a part of their um, engineering team. That's amazing, uh, Cassandra. I think uh, very few of us get that opportunity to have an advocate from our first job. You know, um, as you said, you had an advocate when you were at Kleinfelder and you had an advocate uh, who supported you and who pushed you to who you should be and where you should be um, at Parson Mikarov is, is amazing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think uh, um, I applaud, uh, you know, uh, for you to be the, uh, office manager, district office manager, being a woman. I think very few women are in those positions, uh, if you ask me. And I think um, it's, it's very commendable, right? It's very commendable. And uh, I also think like, as you were talking about, you had an advocate, you know, we always um, have those kind of mentors in our lives, which we don't think about that much as a mentor until you know, we move along and then we see how much uh, influence or effect they have in our careers, right? So if, if, uh, if we think about mentors, I want to ask you, was there one mentor who stood out for you? Um, who pushed you to be a geotechnical engineer, pursue uh, a journey in geotechnical engineering and become a geotechnical engineer as you are today? Yeah, mentoring and advocacy is so important. And I really, you know, I really carry it forward with me in my current career. I, I definitely look for the opportunity to speak up for others and to help help them see their full potential. I think it's my role to give back to others as, as someone else had stepped forward for me. Um, looking back, I, I think uh, the gentleman that stepped in for me in Fresno really was is, is and I and on mentor recognition day on LinkedIn, I give him a shout out and say, you know, uh, his name is Christopher Johnson, and he is a hydrogeologist, and he's, he still lives in Fresno, and I'm still connected with him and his family. Well, let's shift gears a bit to your project, Cassandra. Uh, the subject is a retaining wall. It was in uh, the Bronx, I believe, and it was, a it was located between two housing buildings. Can you paint us a picture of the overall uh, relationship between the buildings, the wall, and maybe some of the uh, different parties that were involved? Absolutely, I'd be happy to fill you on the background. And um, so these two buildings are um, apartment buildings in the Bronx. Um, they're on two neighboring streets, one to the east and one to the west. The difference in the elevation between the east and west is about 70 feet quite steep. The Bronx is known for having um, subsurface geologic conditions that can change very swiftly over a short distance. So the change in elevation between the east side and the west side being 70 feet isn't, isn't abnormal. The rear two courtyards between the east property and the west property, the difference in elevation at that point because of various levels of stairs was about 18 feet or so, 18 to 20 feet. The two apartment buildings were owned by two different landlords. And in May, on Mother's Day 2018, the a portion of the retaining wall collapsed. 
it collapsed on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning. Um, and luckily there were uh, no casualties. There were some damage, but no casualties. And it was an emergency work order. So both of the owners had to get together and address this issue. Um, that uh, was a surprise and it came out of nowhere. And um, they had to come together in order to solve the problem and, and fix the wall. And that's when GZA got involved. I don't think I asked you this before. What kind of retaining wall was it? It was um, it was a gravity wall constructed of a series of just boulders and cobbles. It was not reinforced. It was just gravity. Even the sand between the individual stones wasn't cementitious, so it wasn't cemented even. Um, it was purely gravi gravity, likely constructed in the very early 1900s uh, with very experienced masons, as you can imagine, um, but no drawings, no engineering. Um, so as you can imagine, the concerns um, by all parties were, you know, what's happening and what's gonna happen to the buildings now that this wall has collapsed. Okay, so on each side of this retaining wall, there was a building, and each of the old buildings had two different owners, um, and one of them was your client. Can you tell us a little bit about your first meeting with your client and how things evolved from first meeting through maybe uh, getting into what your role eventually was? Okay, so um, actually on that Sunday, at Mother's Day, uh, we were called to come to the site on Monday morning to evaluate the property. Uh, we were representing and our client was the property to the west, the one at the bottom of the slope. So the collapse of the wall actually landed on my client's rear courtyard. Both, the court, both courtyards at the top of the hill and the bottom of the hill were both isolated from the public. This wasn't a public walkway. This wasn't attached to sidewalks. These are um, areas of courtyard that are intended for means of egress, for fire or um, for travel, just for the people that live in that building. So these two courtyards, both on the east and the west side, um, were basically blocked off from the streets. Um, but the, what the collapse did is it resulted in a need to reconstruct the wall in a safe manner, uh, remove the debris in a safe manner. And the, we, while we were working for the, the um, owner at the bottom of the hill, there was another um, consultant that was working for the owner at the top of the hill. So we had two owners, two consultants, the Department of Buildings, the Fire Department, the Police Department, I think the Red Cross was there just in case someone was hurt. Um, a lot of people involved with what had happened on an emergency, in an emergency situation up, in, up at the property. So the, the, the building department gave guidance to the two owners to tell them, you need to get a professional engineer on board today. And it's important that you get a professional engineer on board that's experienced and that can begin to address the situation immediately because they said that you need to do the rebuild construction before you start to talk about litigation. Okay, so, so you got pulled in uh, when the, the building official told the owner that they needed to engage a consultant like yourself. And so once you got engaged, what did you find as, 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 you're, as you engage with the owner, how did working with the owner differ uh, where they're, you know, obviously a non-technical as compared to say an architect or a structural engineer? So once we were on, once we were on board, initially the neighbor's engineer was taking the lead. So they were taking the lead because the wall, historically the wall had, um, was bearing on their property, actually. They were the owners of the wall. So as a representative of the neighbor, even though the wall landed in their back courtyard, 
they didn't own that wall. So I think that the owners, and I talked to the owners about this is, again, liability was coming second, but I think initially because it was a collapse and a, obviously it, it was going to be a financial hardship and there was going to be expenses involved. Initially, everyone was approaching the situation very carefully to make sure that the appropriate parties were taking responsibility for the um, reconstruction and that we weren't overstepping what our role was by assuming the engineering responsibility before the neighbor on the west side allowed us to because we technically had no role for the wall except to make sure that we approved the, the design and construction recommendations and how they impacted my client. So we were really sort of a secondary role. But what we found was that due to the incredibly restricted access to the rear courtyard that the neighbor's engineer, um, their concept wasn't constructible. So their concept, despite having multiple contractors come out to look at the property, they couldn't get any equipment in the back to do micropiles and to do reconstruction and temporary shoring using drilled methods. So what did the owners say to something like that? You know, you, uh, it, it seems to me that you're an engineer and you, and uh, they go to the build, they have a failure and they're going, oh my gosh, I've got a failure. And they go to the building official building that says, call a consultant. And the consultant, it seems like it's almost like me going to Lowe's and saying, hey, I want a new toilet. And I get a new toilet brought to me. And if they look at me and they say, that's fine, but it'll never work, go do something else. That would be very frustrating on my part. Did you find that with your owners? I mean, did they say, hey, what do you mean you gave me a, a, a solution, but it's, it, it's not constructible? I think that it was, a, I mean, it was an engineered solution. I mean, technically it would hold up the soil and hold up the earth pressures. Did you get feedback from your owner? Did he say, hey, wait a they minute. Were, now. They were frustrated that it was taking so long. And with a time delay wasn't necessarily the concept. It was trying to find a builder of the design. Mm -hmm. And there just was no way to get the equipment in. And we needed to take the time to interview the contractors to, for them to actually say no. And once they said no, you know, half a dozen of them, then we had to go back to the drawing board. So the frustration was, why is this taking so long? Fines are accumulating. We are at risk of even additional fines um, because it's not being resolved. So it sat in its collapsed state for a year. So a year. So having an owner in this situation where it has no idea about engineering or construction, um, it could be definitely... Uh, not an easy solution for anyone, right? Um, and especially if you have to communicate your ideas and your solution options and why the solution A does not work, why solution B can work, it, it's really a difficult situation. It's I'm gotta sure. be, don't, Lucky, don't you think, I mean, imagine, could you imagine we built the Brooklyn Bridge, we've put men on the moon, and then we go to an owner and say, eh, we, we can't fix your rock retaining wall. I, I know. Right. <laughs> Especially to somebody that's non-technical. They're going to go, what are you talking about? Are you really an engineer? I'm, I'm in the think? Bronx. I'm in the biggest, the most important city in the world. Well, sorry, London, but yes, the most important city in the world. And I can't get my stone wall fixed. Anyway, yeah, proceed. Yeah. Keep going, Lucky. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's very uh, crazy thing to say. And even for the owner to hear, I'm sure. I mean, he's not definitely thinking that, well, um, I just want this wall to be stable. You know, I just want this wall to have proper da uh, drainage. I don't think that's what he wanted you to do, right? Uh, and uh, uh, even if he wanted to, how did you find out 
talking to him who is not an engineer or a construction has any idea of construction um how did you find out what what did they need like both the owners um if you have to give some advice on communicating with clients like this uh who are less technical what would you what would you say speaking with the owners and keeping a senior level engineer involved with the project throughout allowed for consistency in communication and recommendations understanding the history and also being able to explain in layman's terms really what needed to happen and what would be the impact on their tenants what would be the impact on the schedule and what I, what we needed from them we really did it engineering and contractors, we didn't need much from the owners. We just had to keep them informed. You know, you said something uh, just then that it just piqued up my interest. You said that they were concerned about the uh, penalties, but they weren't concerned about the construction costs. And I, I wonder if the reason was that the construction costs would be covered by insurance but the penalties would not be. And, you know, that, I mean, maybe the owner rec recognized at least that uh, in terms of the fix. I, Cassandra, I, you may not know that answer though. No, I don't. Gotcha. I would, I would think that you're correct on, on that, but I, I wouldn't know the details of the financial settlement. Yeah. I just, I just, you know, on that topic of communication, I just think of, an unsophisticated owner saying, I want it fixed. I want to be, have it safe. I don't care how you do it, but I need it quick and safe. And you can charge me as much as you want, just as long as it's not in penalties. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, those first, those first few days were about making sure that the, that the, um, that the East building was safe. They were at the top of the slope. So monitoring was installed immediately uh, and it was um, wireless remote monitoring to make sure nothing was moving. Test pits were performed and borings were performed in order to understand the soil profile in greater detail. Um, and then modeling was done in order to evaluate all the loads and what would be happening with that wall. Um, what, we, what we realized and, um, was that the wall that had existed couldn't be reconstructed as it, as it had previously existed because based on the, the loads on the wall, it actually had a safety factor less than one. So in order to construct it to today's design standard, we were going to need to install um, tiebacks of some kind or some um, over-excavate uh, even more to create a, a buttress system or some kind of sig more significant cantilever. Um, and that might have undermined the building to the east. And that's why we ended up constructing and designing a one-on-one -on -one slope um, for the repair instead of a, a vertical retaining wall that's 18 feet high. So, uh, you know, that's an excellent point for, uh, for certainly folks in urban areas like yourself you've got a wall that's been around for over a hundred years. It has a problem. And then you realize that whatever you replace that with has to have a substantial uh, higher factor safety and, and probably a, a lot more uh, invasive than the previous structure. That's a good point. And if we had had access, if we had had access to the backyard, there's so many different types of equipment. We could have got back there and done miracles. And it could have been faster than, than um, construction using just manual labor and hand tools. You know, the excavation, I mean, pardon me, the, the, the removal of the debris from the collapse alone was a, was a little like uh, the reference to Shawshank Redemption, right? So it was all wheelbarrows and men with bags, so. Yeah, you were the um, Andy Dufresne of geotechnical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was very labor-intensive. Performed the, the remediation with a spoon. Um, <laughs> but, I, but, but a great, you know, a, a great illustration that sometimes the right solution is the simplest. Uh, 
you, you, you could have done a lot of technical in, uh, solutions. In fact, the other consultant on the uphill side came up with one, but what won the day was regrading the slope to a safe uh, angle. It was less invasive. It provided the factor safety and it uh, could be done uh, within the limitations of, of space that you were presented with. Mm -hmm. We, you know, typically we would be advised by our attorneys and our insurers that there are aspects to this particular project that make it of an increased risk. So in dealing with these things, multifamily housing, a failure, uh, unstable ground insurance uh, companies, what were some keys do you believe with your company and, and your efforts that allowed you to prevail in spite of these risks? Unfortunately, the risks are um, fairly common here in an urban environment where lot line construction is the standard practice. So it's a, it's a pretty common theme for us here. It does require um, a lot more hands-on by principal level engineers who are going to have enough experience to manage the risk. We had engineering team for the west property at the bottom of the slope and the east property at the top of the slope. We had two engineering teams that are, were working cooperatively to try to come up with the solution, solution. Setting aside, you know, responsibility and egos and, and um, litigation just to, to find the right solution that was really paramount. And so when you have a couple of consultants working towards the same goal and to mitigate risk and to look out for each other um, and look out for the owners, um, that, that really was you know, an important part to our approach um, to this particular project. Um, as you can imagine, you know, GZA doesn't want to land up in the newspaper and we don't want to be, we don't want to be stuck with any headline. So safety, monitoring, movement, communication, um, the proper analysis, proper explorations are all part of that, that recipe to come up with what's going to be correct for that particular um, retaining wall. And each site's different. So you have to approach it with whatever tools are in your tool belt to, uh, to come up with the right answer. You know, that made me think the, um, you had mentioned the technical aspects and how you were focused in on those. Uh, but we do learn from, you know, study after this study seems to show that we get into trouble with litigation when one party gets upset. Did you ever feel uh, uh, that the owners were getting frustrated, upset, uh, and, and did they ever point their anger at you or, or at the other the engineering community that they weren't getting satisfied? No, we didn't have it. No, there was, a, I think frustration, like I said, with regards to timing, like it was a little slower than they had thought it was gonna take. So, uh, Tim and Cassandra, it is time for our sponsor break. DFI Game Day co-anchor Chris Woods of Densification Inc. is our sponsor for today's episode. Chris is actually from the New York area himself. Um, although now he finds himself in the national's capital in Washington, D.C., he's also practitioner adjunct faculty at George Mason University. Um, and we have all known Chris for a very long time. <laughs> Hello, Chris. Thank you. And Densification, it's great to have you on our show again. Oh, lucky. Thank you very much. Uh, Tim, good to see you. Cassandra, very Good to see you, Chris. I'm enjoying listening to the story. These, these have been great to, to learn from. Um, I, Cassandra, I just, I want to start by just thanking you, you know, for being here and being part of this. I, I, I'm here today acting as a, as an episode sponsor in that capacity of my, 
with my company, but I've also had the very uh, good fortune to be involved on the planning side of things, working over the last several months with, with Lucky and Tim uh, as this podcast is, has kind of come to reality. And, you know, from the very beginning, you know, there's with the pandemic, everything shifting virtual, there's a lot of material. There's a lot of people doing a lot of different things online. And, and one of the things we were really focused on was doing something unique, something that people would find interesting to want to come listen to and finding people to discuss failure, right? Everyone's really good at going to conferences and patting themselves on the back and talking about how great this last project was, right? I mean, that's not a hard thing to do, but failures, you know, which is what this first season of the podcast has been about is, is a really tough thing, regardless of, of what angle you're coming from. But from this, from the first episode on, I'm, I'm feeling very strongly with each passing episode, including this one that, you know, yourself or other guests are being able to convey learning opportunities that come that are so much more powerful when they come from failure than, than the run of the mill project that just went great. So a situation like this, this isn't your design. This isn't a failure that you may have been involved in. You've just kind of been brought into the middle of this. You're still involved in a failure nonetheless. So can you maybe just talk about like what you've kind of taken away from working on a, on a failure such as this, that's kind of shaped your mindset as you like move through projects that you are responsible for? Question. Um, well, certainly coming away from coming away from this project and, and looking uh, more closely at walls and retaining walls um, has really been a big focus of our, our team and our group here in New York. Um, as you can imagine, you know, long-term stability of retaining walls, uh, risk and bracing of existing walls, monitoring of walls, um, the, the, the diversity of the types of historic wall systems that exist, both above grade and below grade um, along waterfront is, is, is something that takes uh, a kind of a deep dive into what was Especially being used. In New York. What was being used? Yeah. Why was it being used? What can you expect to encounter and why are you going to encounter it? Um, you know, the, the city uh, launched a retaining wall um, uh, program really to protect the public from these walls as a result of a, of a major collapse um, up, 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 in, up in the Bronx. Um, and that retaining wall collapse uh, on Route 9, I think it's Castle Hill, right? Or is Castle it? Village, yeah. Castle Village, right. So Castle Village really drove this whole retaining wall protection and retaining wall inspection um, program by the Department of Buildings that they are asking engineers to be responsible and to take ownership of these walls and to establish criteria that forces repair, maintenance, um, rehabilitation, or monitoring. So um, the, the city really stepped up and that's really allowed us to kind of broaden what are we recommending today and is it gonna last? And what are we talking to people about when we're talking to them about retaining walls? Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, a recommendation is only as good as that an owner that is willing to act on it and properly implement it. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. that's only half of it. That's, true. that's um, true. All right. So one more question. This is more just like, you know, the engineering kind of geeky side of me, right. I I've seen some of the pictures preparing for, you know, talking with you today. You you're not kidding. That's a, that's a tight site. So you had mentioned <laughs> before borings, test pits, like, what kind of equipment you, you had a base of design on something, right? So like, wh right. what was this, right. what did this investigation look like? What did it entail? What kind of equipment, like, what did you get in there? Um, they were all hand dug test pits. Um, but the important, well, we had to understand what was at the base, right? So we did mm -hmm. test pits at the bottom, which is the West side, but the more important test pit was on the top of the slope. And it was actually inside the cellar, of the East building because we didn't know where their footing was. Mm. And we ended up going, because we had to create a slope stability model 
And if we didn't know the geometry of their footing, we kept thinking that they are inducing pressure on the slope. And that, and I have to share a schematic with Lucky as part of the background and the graphics for the presentation today, but that was one of the most instrumental pieces to understanding the risk of the building at the top of the slope. And that once we knew that geometry, it really eliminated the risk. Um, yeah, we no, knew the building wasn't moving from the monitoring, but we, if we didn't have those elevations, we couldn't model it. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's a difference between a life safety, a life safety issue and not a life safety issue. So. Exactly. It also gave us a chance to understand the, uh, the granular nature of the backfill and the de- the relative density of the backfill. And that helped us to develop our active and passive co- uh, pressure coefficients. So friction angle, active, uh, active and passive, those were also key in evaluating how much load was gonna be acting on those new knee walls and was the one-to-one slope gonna work even with the shock feet. So um, we really had to get in there. Now the borings were just done at the upper and lower sidewalk levels, not within the backyard. We couldn't do it. Um, In those confined spaces though, we do have hydraulic and electric rigs that are hand carried into basements and hand carried into tight spaces and then reassembled. We we don't use the tripod rig anymore. We use Uh, a more advanced (laughs) system, so. I remember the tripod rigs, yes. (laughs) No tripods anymore, so. There's electric rigs and hydraulic rigs that um, that the drillers actually physically carry into these tight spaces. Yeah. Got it. And no, we also awesome. use in the test pit is really cool is we use a dynamic cone, okay. which is a hand driven probe that gives us relative density as well. So yeah, it was, cool. it was, it was, no, you have to use I, those I, tools, just, I tell you. Yeah, no, that just kind of was like, man, now I'm looking at these pictures. I'm like, how, how do you get in there, right? You, you're, I put myself back in my shoes as a, a geotechnical engineer. I'm like, how do I even scope something like this, right? So. Yeah, and that was nice too. The, the owner really didn't push us too much, right? It was emergency action. So they really were just like, give me your resume, give me your fee schedule, come out. It wasn't like change order by change order by change order by change order. It was just keep working until it's done. And at the end, we'll iron it all out. So it was just T&M work until completion. All right. Well, thank you again for, for humor and my couple questions here, Tim lucky. It's, it's always good to see you guys. I appreciate you having me on today. So nice to talk to to see you too. All right. Take care guys. Okay, so before the break, we were focused on your efforts, Cassandra, to understand and respond to the owner's needs. And we've talked a little bit about the engineering and the concepts that were brought to the table by the engineers, including yourself. But what I've heard also is this project, Castle Village. And it seems like it threw a shadow over uh, your project. Uh, Could you tell us maybe just a little bit of background on Castle Village? Yeah, I can speak to um, what I know about it because it was, it's, it was a very public uh, collapse of a very high rock retaining wall in the Bronx on the West Side Highway and the retaining wall in the neighborhood of 60 to 80 feet high, really tall, and it just collapsed right onto the highway, right, endangering public safety. The wall had been had been observed to have been bulging and moving and it had shown signs of distress and it was being monitored and it collapsed anyways. But it sounds like it changed policy a little bit within the Bronx and maybe beyond. Yeah, yeah. Well, after after that collapse, that really drove the building department to take the conditions of retaining walls more seriously and put the responsibility of action into an engineer's hands. Gotcha. So, so, so would I be would I be right in if I were to say that at least in your experience and experience in the Bronx, that uh, failure 
was a fairly strong driver in the evolution of at least the practice on historical retaining walls. Yes, very much so. Very and much would, so. It, would, it, would, it, would it be also fair to say that, and, and in a way, you benefited from, from that? I mean, it sounds like when you say your two owners came together uh, because of the atmosphere that was created by Castle Village, is that maybe true? It's, it's possible. It's possible that, that that allowed them to work more cooperatively together. Um, the, the changes that resulted from Castle Village with the intent of protecting the public and public safety is a benefit to everyone. That's wonderful to hear that, you know, and I know that the, we, we, we go along the spectrum, we move to one end and then the other, you know, and so many times, at least my experiences, we get in projects where the, the dollar is the driver and that it, and, and many times it drives a wedge uh, between the contractor, the owner, or in this case, two owners. But it sounds like, which is very nice, refreshing to hear, that on this project, it really wasn't the dollar. It was really the safety and all the concern for each other. And boy, that's rare in society in general. Uh, but to come together and come up with a solution uh, where everybody wins. And, um, and, I, and I guess we could... Uh, be grateful to whoever was in, I guess, post failure of the Castle Village project. We can be grateful to them for the situation you were in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my client, he he um, has expressed to me that he realized that the repair was going to cost money. He knew it. Um, but he knew that if they went to litigation, it would just be worse for everyone. So if you're thinking, I mean, it's in New York City, it's really, really difficult, right, to resolve a failure like this, or even think about any kind of failure, any kind of dispute, it's so difficult to uh, resolve in New York City. There are too many parties present, right? On engineering projects that we have seen, usually it is never just the client, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the client actually has DEP, DEC, um, the city, Port Authority, everyone is involved uh, based on the location of the project. Um, when you're thinking about this project and the way it was and the people who were involved, um, is this level of difficulty common to the New York cultural fabric, or would you think this type of, type of failure um, is a challenge anywhere else as well? I think it's a challenge uh, pretty much anywhere. Uh, retaining walls, and we've seen them in rural environments here, even in the five boroughs, we've seen them on Staten Island, we've seen them move. So this can happen anywhere. And that's why I think that sort of deeper and larger understanding of retaining wall performance is important because it impacts, it, it does impact more than just an, a single owner. In, in preparing for this podcast, Sandra, we, we talked a little bit of, and, and one of the things we asked you was, you know, were you the person that was the point person for GZA and, and you, you said, yes. In fact, you had had the majority of contact with the owner, one of the buildings, uh, uh, landlords. Um, was that strategic or did it just happen? No, it was strategic. Yeah. Yeah. When it, because for a project like this, where it's more likely than not to go to litigation, it's, it's, um, it's our practice typically to keep a principal involved throughout. It's just, um, it's just a way to handle kind of an expert related case. Um, some, of the, some of the inspection work was done by staff. Some of the site work and photographs and site visits were done by staff or a project manager. Um, but the day-to-day -day correspondence decision-making was, was all on me. You know, and and I can see the ration the the rationale of that. Um, you know, if you have one point of contact, then 
Cassandra, you know of the previous discussions. You know what that content, what the mood of those were. And then the current conversation or any future conversation can bring that all together. Right. You can have you can ensure some continuity in the presentation, whereas if multiple folks were involved in, in point of contact, I, I could see where that would be OK for a developer or that could be OK if you were dealing with like a, a structural engineering firm where they really only they're looking for black and white answers. You know, it's binary. It's yes, no. You know, here's data. But. You were dealing a lot with the human aspect, weren't you, Cassandra? Yes. Yeah. And, and as you can, as you can um, kind of understand from the story, is that in a situation where you have so many parties involved, including tenants and superintendents and the public on the sidewalk where my contractor has to interact, um, it requires some the ability to communicate to them in a manner that shows a deeper understanding of impact so you had to go in there with a room full of people and read the room some something i'm very interested to ask you cassandra that uh, you know uh, being a woman engineer uh, you know uh, what I have faced is like when you walk into a meeting uh, as such you're talking about it's uh, very common for all, uh, no offense to Chris. I mean, uh, no offense to our. Sponsor, oh, I'll offend our, Chris. <laughs> Are you asking for me to offend Chris? No, no, no. I'm saying like no offense to you. Oh, or, okay. Our, okay. Uh, sorry. Our, uh, uh, our team. I mean, our episode sponsor. Uh, what I mean <laughs> to say is like you know when you walk into a room like that and you're a woman engineer and. Um, everyone in the room thinks that you're not the decision maker. And, uh, you know, they always look at a, a male body as the decision maker. I think it must have been an amazing experience, right? Like standing there and, and saying like, yes, I'm the one who is going to make the decision here. Yeah, that's funny that you say that because the original meetings were, it was all the stakeholders were men except the engineers on both party sides. So we were the only ones there with hard hats. And so we were the responsible parties and it was the two women in the room. So as we come to the end of our time here today, um, uh, what we learned about uh, from Cassandra is a retaining wall failure that occurred in the Bronx. And it was uh, heavily influenced by a previous failure uh, nearby uh, Castle Village and in Cassandra's case, the team really came together. The, the two owners uh, that surrounded a retaining wall, they came together, the city came together, and they looked for a solution. And, and of course, uh, as engineers do, they came up with multiple solutions. And Cassandra's that was relatively simple and beautiful and involved regrading the slope was decided upon. But Cassandra, let us know that from an owner's perspective, they're, they're really interested in things like, can I avoid getting fines? Can you repair it safely? They weren't asking questions like, what is going to be the active earth pressure in your design? And when we have those discussions as engineers with owners, uh, we got to keep in mind what their expectations are and what their fears are. And it sounds like Cassandra addressed those by tackling it herself, trying to maintain, continue with the client and trying to, as we said, read the room when he walked into a group of, uh, of stakeholders, including the owners or the city or the tenants. And, you know, we, we, as engineers, we, we live in our engineering communities, but we also live in society in general. And we are asked to perform a role, but then at times we've got to expand that to share our knowledge and, and for the safety and, and benefit of others. But uh, I think this failure that Cassandra has shared with us is an excellent example of how to perform under very difficult situations. Thank you, Cassandra. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I think this has been an amazing um, story to learn as Tim was explaining in terms of urban area and owner's perspective. 
Um, as we close this episode, um, for other female engineers who aspire to grow to management positions, what advice do you have for them? Well, my advice to any junior engineer who wants to rise to senior levels is to hone in on your technical practice very early on and really do it well. Um, just decide on an area that you really want to dig deep into and enjoy it and learn, learn it and study it. Such great advice. Thank you so much, Cassandra. Thank you for being here for, you know, for this episode. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I have such high, high regard for Deep Foundations Institute. They have been a very strong piece and part of my technical professional practice. And I enjoy very much being a part of DFI. That's great to hear. <laughs> yes. Thank you. You're welcome. You're very welcome. On behalf of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcasts are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Proudly brought to you by our series sponsor, Peer Research, and today's episode sponsor, Densification. Thanks for your time. Keep on surviving. <laughs>